Welcome to Refresh, a podcast designed to revive, recharge, and renew your faith and give you the tools to follow Jesus. Refresh comes to you from the Salvation Army in Gwinnett County, Georgia. We meet in person every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. or online on Facebook and YouTube at Sal Army Gwinnett. We are excited that you have joined us this week and pray that God will bring his word to life. And now for our speaker. He was such a good king, King Hezekiah has now been handed authority of the southern kingdom by his father Ahaz. Now Hezekiah was a king that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The scripture tells us that. Under his leadership, the nation of Judah worshipped the one true God. No substitutions, no exceptions under his leadership. He was strong, this one was, in his faith. And it did not doubt God or his strength ever. Now history will look upon Hezekiah as one of, if not the best king Judah will ever have. In fact, Hezekiah was so favored by God, that he was so favored by God, that when a sickness fell on him, when an illness came over him as the king, the prophet Isaiah came to him and said, that the Lord has told me that you will die to this disease. So get your things in order. And the first thing Hezekiah did was he went to his knees and prayed, Lord, do not forget me, your servant, and ask for more time. And when we read the scripture, Hezekiah was granted his request by God. And he healed him and gave him 15 more years. You see, this was a prosperous time for Judah, for God's people. But, there's always one of those, isn't there? But adversity comes knocking at the door of even the best men. You see, the Assyrian army has marched up to the gates of the city of David. And their king demands that Judah be handed over to him at once. The Assyrian king, even standing outside of the city, assured the great king Hezekiah that there is no God big enough to prevent me from taking your land. Look at the nations who have fallen before you who are now under my rule. And so he assured them that your God will not save you from this. Hezekiah, upon hearing these words, did not back down. And immediately, you would think perhaps as king, it would be to go and send the attack. But his order to the people was to fall to your knees and pray now. Pray, for God has not abandoned us yet and he won't abandon us now. And so they fell to their knees as a nation. But you also see Hezekiah was prepared. He was actually preparing for a day just like this, the scripture tells us. You see, some years back, before this little incident with the Assyrian army, Hezekiah built a secret underground channel 
that routed water into the city in case they ever entered into a time of war. You see, that what they didn't want was to be stuck in their gates and they have no resources. So he thought ahead and he built this little channel. Now, besides bringing water into the city, the channel itself also hid water from the forces outside of the city's gates. So it gave the impression that there was no water around, perhaps convincing the opposing army that the land wasn't worth the fight. It was an amazing piece of construction, actually, when you think about it, when we look at it, and it was just recently discovered, this channel. It was discovered in about 2004 in Israel, outside the city of David, exactly where Scripture says it was. And it's an impressive piece of construction. You see, over 2,000 feet of solid rock had to be chipped away by the people. Chip after chip after, there were no drills, there were no tractors, there were nothing like that. They had to chip it away underneath the city. And once the construction was complete, you see, there was a sight to see. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine when they opened the channel gates for the very first time and watched the first drops of water being poured into the pool there where they've laid it out? It has to be, no doubt, a reminder that God has not abandoned them. The secret water channel was given a name by the people. They referred to it as Hezekiah's Channel. And it fed into a pool inside the city for citizens to fetch water, and they always have that resource available. The pool will also be given a name. It was given the name Siloam, meaning sent. And now, this is the day he's been waiting for. The Assyrians threatening their attack outside of the gate. It was time to put it to use. They're ready for this. Hezekiah orders for the channel to be open, stopping the flow of water to all the Assyrian army. And the water started flowing towards God's people, and the opposing army was running out and running dry. But God did not allow Judah to fall, according to Scripture. That night, when the whole nation went to bed, it says that when they were sleeping, that he sent one of his angels down from heaven and defeated the entire Assyrian army alone. All 185,000 of them were defeated by the angel of God. And the next morning, when looking past his city's walls, Hezekiah awoke to the sight of the entire Assyrian army, lifeless. And then looking inside the wall, down to the pool area, God's people fetching buckets of water, being filled with life. Even though John only lists seven miracles or seven signs, Jesus does so much more than that. This morning we're going to be looking at number five in the book of John, but number 26 overall. So now he's got a few miracles under his belt. He's done, he's done this a few times. He's been traveling around. People are getting the idea that this guy has, uh, has some type of ability, some type of, of special uh, anointing on him. And so from where we left off last week with the feeding of the 5,000, 
I want to tell you what Jesus has been up to. This is what he's done since the last time we spoke about him. The disciples were filled with fear when they watched Jesus walk on the water. He healed many sick people by simply allowing them to touch his clothes, the scripture says. That they were just coming to touch him and then whatever they had was healed. He healed a demon-possessed daughter and cast out what was holding her back. He healed a deaf and mute man. And then he fed, get this, another 4,000 men. Yes, that, you heard that right. He did that a second time. He fed the masses two times in Scripture. One kind of gets the glory, but the other one is equally as impressive. He fed 4,000 men with only seven loaves and a few fishes. And then he healed a blind man at Bethsaida. And today we pick up what I would call a very interesting moment in Jesus' ministry. Just within, if you were to look at chapter 9, what we're going to be diving in and looking into today, just within the last few verses before chapter 9, just right before it, Jesus took a really, what I would call, big step, a huge step. And he proclaimed to a very large crowd that he himself is the Messiah. A big deal. The crowd, you see, has been watching. This crowd that he professes to has been watching him perform miracle after miracle. They've been seeing him do all of these unexplainable things. And the crowds were even beginning to doubt And even say that this man right here, the only reason why he can do these things is because he's demon-possessed. And they started to, to tell the rest of the crowd, this is no prophet, he's possessed. And so they wanted to put Jesus to the test. They wanted to kind of put him on trial, the citizens and the crowd at that time. So they asked him a trick question. So the crowd shouted out to him, are you... Jesus, are you greater than our father Abraham? Oh, that's an interesting question. No one would ever in their right mind say they're, they're greater than, than the founder of the nation, right? You would say you're greater than father Abraham. But Jesus responds to the crowd right here and he says, you don't even know Abraham. And here's what's crazy. He says, I know him personally. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, he says. In fact, he was glad when I came. And the crowd, as soon as he said that, didn't like the response. They said, wait a minute, you're not even 50 years old. How can you know Abraham? How do you know? Obviously, this man is possessed. And he replies, and here it is for the crowd to hear. He says, I tell you the truth, that before Abraham was even born, I am. I am. And as soon as he said that, the crowd tried to kill him. That was their response, was to kill him. So they picked up their stones. They were going to stone Jesus to death on the spot right then and there. 
But the scripture says that he just slipped away before they can do that. And this, my friends, is the atmosphere that our story picks up today. This is the atmosphere that we find Jesus in at the beginning of chapter 9. That as he slipped away from this, this rowdy crowd that wanted to kill him and put him to death, Jesus slips out and he sees a man who was sitting on the ground. He, he, all the noise and ca- he just saw this man sitting there. And he was begging. And it appeared that this man was blind. Now the area of town, let me tell you, Jesus was very familiar with. This wasn't a, a part of town where he wouldn't have known. In fact, just a, a few chapters back, within the same visit, I may add, Jesus spent the entire Feast of Tabernacles, an eight-day festival, in this exact area where this man is begging right now. You see, the locals called it the Pool of Siloam. Now, Jesus chose to spend the entire Feast of Tabernacles here because this particular pool was closest to the temple. And its waters were used for a very special ceremony during the feast. Now, during the feast, this is what would happen. During the Feast of Tabernacles, a priest would come out, and he would carry with him a gold vessel, a gold bucket, if you will. And he would come out to this little pool area, and every morning during the feast, he would come and get water from the Pool of Siloam. Now, as he would get this water out, he would bring it back to the altar and lay the water as an offering. Now, while he was doing this, the entire crowd who was there, those pilgrims that traveled in or whoever was in the area, as the priests were getting their water, they would be reciting, they would be singing, they would be shouting, and they would be doing it from Psalms 113 through 118. And they would in unison be shouting and singing these things together. And they would do this for seven days to illustrate what Isaiah said in chapter 12, verse 3, which he wrote, that with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so they would sing and shout from the Psalms. However, on the eighth day of the feast, the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest would not come and get water. They would not sing. They wouldn't do any of the rituals on the eighth day. There'd be no water, no priests, no nothing. And what's interesting is that just a chapter back, Jesus says, the scripture says, that he's been sitting by the pool this entire week here at the pool of Shalom. And he's been watching the priests come every day, been performing the rituals and seeing it happen. But on the eighth day, the day where there was no water drawn. He stood to his feet and he said in a loud voice to the entire crowd there, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me will have streams of living water flowing from within them, not from this bucket. And then right now, chapter 9, we see Jesus is back again at the same pool, but this time not with his eye on the crowd. He's only got his eye on one person. 
the blind man who is begging. Now the man, according to Scripture, has been blind from birth. And his disciples, can you imagine coming out of that scene, coming out of that chaos, trying to probably protect Jesus yet again from another death threat? But they notice that Jesus is just staring at this man who's on the ground. That even after all of the chaos that they just escaped, it appears that Jesus was not shaken or disturbed by it. They could even see that he was unusually focused on this person. So the disciples decided to uh, break the silence. That's what they said. They said, teacher, since this man here has been blind from birth, who sinned? This man or his parents? Since he's blind and has been from birth, was it him or his parents who sinned to cause that? Now, what an odd question to ask. And my first thought was, read the room, disciples. Jesus is on to something here. He's got some focus going on. Why are, we, why are we asking these questions? But when I looked into why, why this question, it turns out it's not that odd of one to ask after all. They asked a question that probably quite honestly many of them have wondered about throughout their entire life. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that even those in this room right now, that some of us have some weird questions that we would like to ask Jesus if given the opportunity. And that day will come, my friends. But you see, there was an old Jewish teaching floating around that if a person was born with an illness or a disability, that it was most likely due to the sins of their parents, that they did something wrong in the eyes of the Lord, and now their sin has taken into a physical effect onto their offspring. There was also a secondary teaching that if a person sinned while still in the womb, you would then be born with a disability. I'll let you figure that one out. So the disciples actually were just asking for some clarification. They were just, they were just, they were just, they wanted this one to be figured out. It was an innocent question. It was a, it was a question that was certainly one that you would find in the theological debates among the church, among the Jews at that time. They didn't mean any disrespect by it by any means. They just wanted to know. Is it him or is it his parents, Jesus, so we can know? And this is what Jesus responds to this, 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 this debate, this question. He looks at his disciples and he says, Neither. Neither this man nor his parents' sins did this. But this happened so the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, he says, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now let me tell you what Jesus is saying. 
He's saying to stop playing church by debating theology and just help the man. This is what he's telling them. Stop with the theology debates and help him. This man isn't a puzzle to be figured out. He is a soul that needs to be saved. You want to debate if sin caused this condition? The answer is yes. But not the sin of his parents, nor even his own. It was the sin found in the garden that separated man from God in the beginning. This is what separation looks like. Disease, sickness, murder, war, oppression. This is why I'm here. I'm here to atone, to bring back what was separated and make it once again one with my Father. I am the light of the world. And then right here, Jesus spits on the ground. Maybe, thought, maybe he's angry at them. He just spits on them. No, he spits on the ground. And he goes and put this saliva, makes some mud in his hands. And he takes this saliva mud and he goes over to the man and he just rubs it on his eyes. And what did this guy do to you, Jesus? You rub mud all over him. And so he just rubbing mud all over his eyes. He's putting it all over there. And I want to think, I really think this is important to point out. Something that stood out to me when I was examining and looking at this is that what an interesting and unusual method. And it's important to point out that Jesus hardly ever uses the same method to heal. It's almost like he didn't want to set some type of precedent. That he doesn't want us to think that it was the method that brought the healing. The power is only in God, not the method. If he did the same method every time, maybe you and I would maybe even start to believe that we could do that too. He always did the impossible differently every time. But what I do find interesting here is that Jesus did decide to use dirt to heal this man. That same dirt that gave man life in the garden is now giving life once again. And so Jesus tells the man, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man got up and he went in and he submerged himself in this pool, in this ceremonial clean pool that priests would use the, even their buckets to go and lay an, an offering into the altar. And Jesus is telling this man, go and submerge yourself in that. And when he came out, he was able to see for the very first time in his life. He was healed. Your sins are not greater than him. They're not greater than him. Friends, your sins are not too big for him. Your illness is not greater than him. Wars are not beneath him. These are all signs of being separated from God. 
And I know it's easy because I've been asked this question so many times myself. And I know it's easy to ask why a loving God would allow these things to happen. And there's no simple answer except it wasn't supposed to be this way. God in his perfection made us perfect until we left God. We abandoned him, not the other way around. We left him. He didn't leave us. And unfortunately, this is what comes with separation from God, is what we see in the world. Illness and disease, murder, war. That This is what comes with separation. And it's not because God hates the world or that he's blind to what we see. If only you could see what I see, God, you would do something about this. I'm going to tell you that when man separated in the garden, he was already working on a plan. You see, on the contrary, he loves this world greater than any one person could. He was working on a plan that would get us back together with his father, back in line with the creator. No, not a plan that will bring the the perfection found in the garden into this world once again, but for sin has already run its course. But instead a plan that will take the absolute worst, the absolute dirtiest, the most broken, evil, and corrupt, and restore them. Make them new. See, what God does is he takes what's broken and he makes it new what's evil and God can then turn that to good he had a plan to reunite creation with the creator a plan that would require that sin itself be put to death that we're going to put it to death now and from the very beginning of the garden when the man left and the separation took place there was only ever one plan for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not die but have everlasting life church this this is our God this is who he is a God with a plan, a God with their overreaching arm, a healer, a restorer, a redeemer, a God who isn't satisfied with separation. And he took it upon himself to fix the whole. He didn't want to be separate from us. He didn't want to be away from his creation. The second we left, he says, I gotta find, you gotta get them back. There's God, we gotta have a way to get them back. He started working this plan with his son. And for those of you who do not know God, for you do not know him or his story, you're not familiar with the name of Jesus, this doesn't mean anything to you in your heart. 
I want to tell you that he's your God too. That he's waiting and ready to be back with you. This is him. And this morning, I specifically want us to, to, in our own personal lives, reflect what is separating us from him. What's that thing that keeps coming back and it wants to tear us apart? It wants to keep us separate. Wants to just, just have us even forget that God is any of these things. See, sometimes it's not something physical. It's not a, a well, I, I, I just can't quit doing this. Sometimes, and I, I will tell you, it's up here. It's mental. It's emotional. It's that when we close our eyes, we can't, we can't shake it. We can't get it off of our backs. We can't, we're filled with fear in our lives. And every time we even start to think about God's overreaching arm, it was almost like a wall is blocking us. I can't get past it. Sometimes it's a physical illness in our bodies that's pulling us back. Every time we want to reach out to God, it pulls us back and says, you can't do that. You can't reach out. You're not strong enough. He isn't real. I'm real. I'm going to tell you, your illness your disease, whatever is in your body, can be overcome by Him. Sometimes it is in a physical form that we can see on the x-rays that what was there is no longer there. And there are other times where our full restoration is in His arms. I don't get to pick and choose. That wasn't on my job description when I signed up. All I can do is tell you He's there. He's real. And that whatever you're going through, whatever, whatever thing tries to hold you back and stumble upon you, even cloud your mind with darkness, despair, and depression, that these things are from the evil one and can be overcome by his light. For he is the light of the world. Thank you for listening to Refresh. Be sure to hit subscribe and like us on Facebook and YouTube to never miss an episode. If you liked what you heard, be sure to share it with your friends and family. We pray that you will be refreshed and ready to take on your week. See you next time. God bless.